Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. And so we have a little bit of work ahead of us. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29 this morning. You're going to want to begin to make your way there. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, we'd love for that to be a gift that you take home, that you use. If you're not familiar with how to use it, you can find a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know where the book of Galatians is located. The large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Again, this morning, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. Verses 15 through 29. How many of you know what this is? You recognize this and you're thinking, I know this, the answer is obvious, but you're wrong. This is, a, this is an instrument of division. This is a tool of separation. This is an item of envy, also known as a tire scrubber. Now you're thinking, how can this one thing be all of these things? How can it be all things to all men? Well, it can't be, right? But it can be all of these things and more to my children. Whenever we, whenever we wash the car for a long time, uh, my kids would fight over who got to scrub the tires with this thing. I mean, look at it. it, it it's actually fairly aerodynamic. I'm not really sure the purpose of that. And the handle is awesome. Look at these hand grips. Like no one's prying this out of your hand once you have it because it is so uh, well fit into your hand. But it, it's, its sole job there is just to get around the tires and just kind of scrub the outside, hit it with the stuff that makes them shine where you roll down the road and people go, mm-mm-mm, that's a fine ride he's got there. That's a fine ride he's got there. Now listen, my five-year-old thinks this is the coolest thing we have when we wash our cars. But he thinks this thing is to be used on every surface of the vehicle. He thinks it's to be used on the wheels, the metal portion. He thinks it's to be used on the bumper. He thinks it's to be used on uh, the, the back bumper, the front bumper. He thinks it's to be used on the doors. And, and you know what? This thing doesn't do any good to the car to use it on anything other than the tires. In fact, it leaves nice little scratch marks because before you use it on any other part of the car, he's got to get it primed in the dirt. You know what I'm saying? He's got to get this thing ready. It doesn't exfoliate skin. It doesn't do anything else. When you use it according to its purpose, it works well. But if you use it for any other purpose... It brings ruin. You have to use it according to its purpose. Bob, can you catch this for me? Thank you. <laughs> when we come into this passage, recognize this. Paul gives us the purpose of the law. But many of us over the course of our lives find us being foggy on the purpose of the law. So we see ourselves using it to great harm in our lives. And the point that Paul drives in is that when we recognize the purpose of the law, we will find the freedom to rest in the promise of faith. Listen, if you live your life failing to recognize the purpose of the law, you will not fully experience the promise of resting and trusting in faith. Would you pray with me once again? Father, I pray this morning that for many of us, we have walked into this room and the ways that we have lived our lives are living our lives fully in submission to the law and fully rejecting faith in you. We want to do it ourselves. We want to measure our own goodness. We want to attain to our own righteousness. We want to deserve forgiveness. 
none of those things are the purpose of your law. So God, I pray that over the course of this sermon that you would set us free in as much as we find ourselves in that trap. And God, that I pray that over the course of this sermon that you would see us walk in freedom, lay down our burdens, surrender our sins, that the purpose of the law would fulfill its role in our lives, that we might fulfill our role in the lives that you've called us to live unto your glory. And so Father, we submit these things to you We ask for your prayer. Uh, We ask that our prayers would be heard by you, that we would be sustained by the power of your spirit, that you would guide us in this time and apply the truth of your word to our hearts and minds. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, let's read uh, 15 through 29, and then we will walk through it together. The apostle Paul writes and says, to give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer coming by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen? Amen. As we look at this, when we come into this understanding, the Apostle Paul, over the course of chapter 3, in 3, 1 through 5, he went through and essentially communicated to them that the Spirit comes through faith. The Spirit comes through faith. You didn't get the Spirit by holding on to the law. The Spirit comes through faith. And then in 6 through 9, he writes and says, listen, if you want to be a part, of, a part of God's family, you become a part of God's family through faith. You can't get there any other way. There's no other way into God's family. If you want to be a part of his family, if you want to be an heir according to Abraham, you get there through faith. And then in 10 through 14, he said, listen, uh, this is is how this works in 1 through 5. This is how this works in 6 through 9. You need to live by faith in 10 10 through 14. And what he gives us in this section 15 through 29 is this understanding then of how the law works, how the law functions. Look at 15 and 16. He has this idea, he says, to give a human example. And he begins to talk to them about human man-made covenants. 
He says, listen, nobody adds to it, nobody annuls it, even in a man-made covenant. So he says, listen, let's talk about a contract. Let's talk about a will. And so let's say that, that, that I have a will and, and I now die. And in order for my will to go out, it can't be changed at that point, right? Whatever has been written has to be executed. It has to be done. And it can't be changed. And Paul says, listen, human contracts and human wills are far less than God's covenant. And human wills and these things can't be changed. No one annuls it. No one adds to it. And so then the strength of this promise, verse 16, the promises made to Abraham and his offspring, they can't be changed either. Now, what do we see in this? We see going back to Genesis 12, when God goes to Abram, says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. And then 430 years later, this, this promise is, is still in effect when the law comes. But what does he say in verse 16? Now the promises are made to Abraham and his offspring. And who is the offspring of Abraham? Ultimately, it is Christ. So we see that the covenant God enters into with Abraham is a covenant based upon faith. And so it's not immediately pointing to Abraham's immediate offspring, his son. It is looking ultimately down the line towards Jesus. And so we recognize that when the law rolls around, And so you go from Abraham to Moses, and God gives the law through Moses. And when the law comes around, it does not nullify the promise God made to Abraham. And the promise God made to Abraham is only ever fully fulfilled in Jesus. Now look at verses 17 and 18. He says, this is what I mean about the law. It came 430 years after. It doesn't doesn't annul the the covenant previously ratified by God. So the one that God made to Abraham is not impacted, it's not sullied, it's not diminished because of the law. It doesn't make the promise void. He says, verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now this idea of giving, and the word used there, gives us the idea that God graced Abraham with this promise. The promise that he gave him was this imbuing this this fantastic gift of grace to him for you and for me. And this is this idea that the promise he gave to him is steadfast, immutable. It is unchanging. It doesn't go away. It's not based upon your good deeds or my good deeds. And this is why Paul is saying this. He said, you don't get this promise by the law. You don't get this promise by being a good Christian. You don't get this promise by being a good person. You don't get this promise by being a Republican or a Democrat or an independent or some type of totalitarian person. You don't get this promise according to any other way. You get this promise through faith in Christ Jesus alone. This is how you become a part of the promise. And to believe anything else and to trust in anything else does damage to this promise. God gave it to Abraham by a promise and it remains steadfast. Now listen, in 19 through 24, he gives us three different characteristics of the law. Three different characteristics of the law. The first is that the law makes us aware of our sin in verses 19 and 20. The law makes us aware of our sin. In verses 19 and 20, look at what he says. He says, why then the law? So if the, if the law doesn't annul the promise, if the law doesn't change the promise, then why in the world do we need the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions. Now Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 
says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So when God added the law, he added the law so we would recognize, in some sense, our inability to keep the law. We'd recognize our inability to keep the law. He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, which in verse 16 we found was Christ, until Christ should come to whom the promise has been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then he says cryptically in verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now let's get into this idea of kind of how God gave the law. He says he gave it through angels to an intermediary and to the people. And so what happens in the midst of this? Well, Hebrews 2.2 brings a little bit of clarity for this. Hebrews 2.2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So essentially what happens is God is communicating the law and the angels come and they carry the law to Moses and Moses is there and he's got the stone tablets and and he's, he's carving it out and he goes down and he presents the law to the people. And then they codify the law and they begin to communicate the law to God's people. And now the law creates a system of understanding and a method of operating and a method for remaining and being in this covenant relationship with the Lord. But it needs an intermediary. Do you see the difference there? Do you remember when God spoke to Abraham? It was just Abraham and he was, he was there and God comes and he speaks directly to him. But when God is ready to convey his law, he doesn't speak directly and he doesn't communicate his law directly to the people that it's going to come into contact with. He communicates his law and he does so through an intermediary. And then he goes on and he says, listen, but we recognize that, that God is one and there is no, and, and he needs no intermediary. And this brings us back to the supremacy of the promise God gave to Abraham more than the promise God gave through Moses. Paul is driving them to this understanding. We need to be those who rest and trust in the promise, not those who rest and trust in the law. And we see the function of the law in our lives. We see the function of the law in our culture. We see the function of the law working in our children in this recognition of right and wrong, right? Sometimes not with a tire scrubber. But we see how it is meant to function and we see its purpose and how God is using it to expose sin in our lives. He says, listen, the law came into your life so that you would have this acute awareness that you cannot be holy. Can't get there on your own. God didn't give you the law and come in and say, uh, hey, Bob, here's the law. Just keep these five things on Monday, and then next week, if you do these really well, I'm going to give you five more. And, and, and then if you keep those 10 things really well, next week I'm going to come in, I'm going to give you five more. And when you get to 50, you get a free frozen yogurt, and you move to this next level of, of belief and faith. It doesn't do that. But too many of us have this understanding that this is exactly how this works. That this is exactly how God is well pleased with us. That when I get church attendance down, then I'm going to move to giving. And when I get giving down, 
then I'm going to move to sharing my faith. Well, let me come back over here to giving. Let me take that back. And when I get church attendance down, then I'm going to come to not watching this. No, I don't want to do that. Okay, so when I, when I think about attending church regularly, then I'm going to start thinking about some other things, right? This is kind of how we make this list of things we're willing to do. We want to sacrifice, but not so much that it actually feels like a sacrifice, only so much as it looks like a sacrifice to those watching us. Woo! I was too close to home, right? We want God in some sense to operate like the law. But he doesn't do that. God graciously introduces the law into our lives so that we walk away with this understanding of I cannot do this alone. Can't keep the law. The more I come into contact with the law, the more I come into this awareness of my complete and utter reprobate status before God that I am wayward, adrift, and busily following my sin, my lusts, my desires. That I am a person who delights in doing wrong, that I'm a person who, who cannot be righteous in and of myself. The law highlights this. It brings us into this awareness. It surrounds us with this acute sense that I need something more than the law. So we roll into verses 21 through 22. We recognize, friends, the law serves the promise. The law serves the promise. Paul asks, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Romans 3.23 tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We come into this understanding that the law is never going to move us towards righteousness. But the law is always bringing an illumination that we need something more, that we need something greater. And there's never been a law that could bring about righteousness. But he goes on in verse 22, he says, But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. The promise of Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. And believe in what? Believe that that you are incapable of keeping the law. Believe that you are incapable of being sinless. Come into this understanding that there is one who is sinless, Christ, the Son of God, that God sent to be the perfect fulfillment, sacrifice for sin. This is how you're made holy. This is how you're made righteous. Paul says that God has imprisoned everything under sin. Gigi Finley writing on this, he said that the law, the law was all the while standing guard over its subjects, watching and checking every attempt to escape, but intending to hand them over in due time to the charge of faith. The law posts its ordinances like so many sentinels around the prisoner's cell. The cordon is complete. He tries again and again to break out. The iron circle will not yield. The deliverance will yet be his. The day of faith approaches. It dawned long ago in Abraham's promise, and even now its light shines into his dungeon, and he hears the words of Jesus, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. He says, Law is a stern jailer, but he has, after all, been a good friend. If it has reserved him for this, it prevents the sinner escaping to a futile and elusive freedom. 
and it holds him steadfast unto faith in Christ. God has imprisoned everything under sin so that we might be set free to true and complete freedom, and that by faith in Jesus. You see, the law serves a promise. We need the law to expose sin in us. We need the law to reign over us, to drive us towards Christ. Because we recognize in the midst of being stuck in sin, as the law is exposing it to us, we have this sense, I can't have enough good days in a row. I can't keep from backsliding. I can't keep from doing the things that I know to be wrong and in the midst of this God I need release God I need freedom and he says I've got it for you and his name is Christ and he comes so that you might be set free you see the law is serves to bring about hope in us for the promise God gave through Abraham and recognize this that the law only serves in, in an interim character. The law's character is, leads it to be an interim basis. Look at verses 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So he's summarizing 21 and 22. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now Hebrews 10.4 gives us an understanding that there's no amount of doing, engaging in the works of the law that are going to make us holy, that are going to set us free. Hebrews 10.4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we recognize that there has to be something more than the sacrificial system that Israelites were engaged in if humanity was going to be set free, if Israel was going to be set free. So how does he describe the law? He says, so then the law was our guardian. Now the word he uses there is, is the word pedagogue. And so a pedagogue would take a child from the age of 6 to 16 in Roman and Greek culture, and they would kind of take them from the time of being a child, and now they're receiving formal instruction. Now, their job was not to teach. The KJV, if you had it, have it, I think it says something along the lines of it is a schoolmaster. Now, this is a bad understanding, and it really corrupts the picture that Paul's trying to paint here. And so a child from the time of 6 to 16 would have this pedagogue, either a slave or a freedman, and their job was to, was to instruct a child in terms of kind of morals and just a little bit of how to live. But really their main job was to take them from the home to the school. And to keep them from being attacked and to guide them along this path. Essentially saying this is what life in the marketplace is like. Don't touch that. Mm -mm, don't buy fish from her. No. She picks her boogers and eats them. Don't, pick, don't buy fish from her. And this is the role of the pedagogue. No, it's temporary. It is short-lived. And its goal is bringing them over here. to the point of need and maturity. But it's not traveling with them over the course of life. The function of the law is to lead us to an understanding 
this is right, this is wrong. But I find myself doing a whole lot more of the wrong than the right. And I find my heart wanting to do more and more wrong and less and less right. And as it's exposing that, God, through the power of his spirit, is producing conviction in us, leading us to an understanding that there is salvation for us, not through the law, not through doing right things, not through abstaining from wrong things, but there is hope for us through the promise of faith and trust in Christ Jesus. This is the function and purpose of the law. Not that we would walk and entrust ourselves daily to this guardian who is only ever meant to serve in this interim basis. But too many of us over the course of our Christian lives, the law is familiar to us. The law is comfortable to us. <laughs> and it's, it's just frankly terrifying to have this idea that you're meant to be a person who lives a life according to the mandates and the dictates of the Holy Spirit with inside you. You're just like, hold on. I'm comfortable with the Ten Commandments. I'm comfortable even with some of the myriad of various laws. I've never boiled a kid in its mother's milk. I mean, like I've never done any of these things. I don't mix fabrics. I mean, the people I buy stuff from do. But I've never done a number of the different things that the law prescribes, and I'm comfortable with them. But I'm really uncomfortable to a spirit I can't control. I'm phenomenally uncomfortable with a spirit that could come along and lead me to an understanding of a path and direction that is something different than I want to do. Could lead me to lay down rights. Could lead me to change my path, abandon my vocation. Could lead me to discomfort. I'd rather have the law. I'd rather have a short or a long or intermediate length list of, of do's and don'ts this idea of the spirit doesn't sound like freedom to me it sounds like increased bondage see if that's you today if that's you today if that's how you feel I got news for you you don't want real freedom you don't want release. You want to be your own God. You want to call all your own shots. You want to direct your own life. And that is incompatible with Christianity. It does not work. It will not function. In order to be a follower of Christ, you need to be the person who comes to the end of the law and says, I can't do it on my own. I never could. It was never intended. It was only ever meant to show me that I couldn't. I need to fall on the promises of Jesus. Jesus, I bring only debt and liability. You bring only forgiveness and life. Forgive me, receive me. Spirit, I surrender my life to you. Lead me, guide me. Direct me. My life is yours. Take and do with it what you will. Because what I could do with it and what I could make it 
is never going to be enough. It's never going to be right. Y'all, we need to be those who are led and guided by God's spirit, not those who greedily hold on and desire for a codified list of do's and don'ts. Look at the faith and promise that he brings to us in 25 through 29. Romans 10, 4 says it well. Romans 10, 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ has satisfied the law for everyone who believes. And then we see this unity depicted here in 25 through 29. He says that the law has ended its reign in our lives. Why? But now, it is because that now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under a guardian. We have been given our certificate of release. We have been set free to live freely unto the Lord. He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You and I are made sons and daughters of the king. You may feel like your family is a mess. You may feel like you're only chronically disappointed by people you're related to. I've got great news for you. You are a son or a daughter of the king and a part of his family. You can never be removed and his family will never fail because we have a father who is good, who is trustworthy, and who calls you to himself. He says, this is what union with him looks like for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, he's not talking about uh, actually getting into and water baptism. He's using baptism as a descriptor of what it looks like and to enter into this radical union with Christ. Now, each time we baptize somebody, we read the words out of Romans 6. In Romans 6, in verses 3 through 6, says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. And so baptism depicts externally, it gives us a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and it identifies us with a local body. That's why you are baptized into the church, and it's not so much an individual expression or an occasional bath, it is an exercise for the church. It says we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you are united by faith in Christ, then you are baptized into Jesus and that you have put on Christ. To walk in faith is to walk around becoming more and more like Christ over the entirety of your life. Now, this does not always look like a smooth progression, one foot after the other. Sometimes what this looks like over the course of our lives is backsliding, and that's unfortunate. Sometimes what this looks like over the course of our lives is sin begins to win a battle. And when we see our brothers and sisters, and and we can recognize that sin is winning a battle in their lives... Because we are all sons and daughters of God together, we come around them and we say, listen, it looks from us, from our vantage point, like sin is winning a battle in your life. Let us come alongside you and help you begin to run this race well again. Let us come along beside you and help you move closer to Christ again. Why? Because you are putting on Christ. This is what Paul said. 
Over the course of our lives as Christians, we're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And this is what the church is becoming. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So then, we recognize in the midst of the worst election I've ever been a part of. And some of y'all were truly terrible. Thank you. The heavenly reality in the midst of that division is that no division exists. So what does that mean for us as a church? What does that mean for us as a group of believers? Paul Paul speaks in the middle of this. Now, he's not getting rid of social distinctions, and he's not getting rid, rid of gender, and he's not entering into a little bit of CRT in the first century. He's not doing any of these things. What he says is your distinctions don't matter in faith. Whether you got a bunch of money, whether you don't. Within his culture, whether you're a slave or whether you're free. Within his culture, whether you're a man or a woman. And there was a prayer in the first century that said, God, thank you for not making me a woman. It was not highly prized. Paul says in the midst of this, You are all one. That the distinctions that rule over you outside of those doors have no bearing over you with inside this place. That in faith, in faith with God, there is no distinction among you. We all approach the throne together. It drives us into this sense of radical unity. So we recognize all the various divisions that might come up. All the various things that we might disagree on. All the various things that we, in fact, do disagree on. Some of y'all are just dead wrong on so many things. Let me tell you about it. But each one of these points of division is an opportunity to point to verse 28 and say, do we believe this is true? And do we believe that the truth of this is more important than to the divisions that harbor, that have the opportunity to harbor resentment in our hearts towards one another? It's a difficult but necessary question for us. Because the point he drives to in verse 29 is that if you are then Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And he doesn't give us the possibility of being divided in that. And it is so incredibly important that we be unified because we will have brothers and sisters in here and elsewhere who will look at the law wrongly. They will seek to make themselves holy by being addicted to an application of the law for their lives, for their children's lives, and for the lives of the people around them. They will put their faith and trust in being good and being right instead of placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, him crucified and him resurrected. But if we can be unified, if we can rally together, if we can be this, this, this picture in Greenville, Texas of what it looks like for a church to come together with a people of disparate, different views, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different perspectives, different opinions. And we can set those aside and say, Jesus reigns in this place. And because Jesus reigns in this place, we want to see everybody finish the race well. Y'all, if we can do that, we can transform the lives of the people in this church. We can transform our kids' understanding of what it looks like to be a part of a community that is uplifting instead of tearing down. 
And if we can do that in this one church, if we can do that in this one church, then there's the possibility that we can have radical impact in the other churches of our community. And oh my goodness, can you imagine what it's going to look like if we can begin to have a radical impact here and a radical impact in the churches of our community, if that begins to spill over then and to have an impact elsewhere. The unity described in Scripture is possible for us to achieve if, if, I'm willing to say to my preferences. I'm willing to say to the things that divide, you don't reign here. We have to do that. We have to do that. The lives of the people in our community depend upon you and I being unified in here so that we can be engaged out there so we can lead men and women in our community, within our families, away from the law and towards the promise. Amen? Hey, let me pray for us. Father God, pray that you would lead us to an understanding of your word that would lead us, move us away from the law and towards the promise. God, we pray for those who are in this room or in this hearing. They do not know your son, Jesus. They would not call themselves a Christian. Or maybe they've called themselves a Christian, but God, they really don't know your son, Jesus. They've just sought to be a right person. God, that this morning that you would set them free, that they would confess their sin of independence, of waywardness to you, that they would surrender their lives. God, that they would ask for your forgiveness and that they would come to know Jesus. So God, that's our prayer for any who don't know your son, Jesus. God, I pray for those of us who we know Jesus. We've been following for years, but God, we have become distracted We've been focusing on the wrong things. God, that you would lead us to freedom, that we might rest in the promise again, that we would see how the law has worked to reveal sin in us, but your spirit has worked to produce freedom in us that cause us to rest and trust in the freedom of faith. God, we submit these things to you. We ask that you would move and stir in our midst as we turn our hearts to worship you. And God, that you would stir those of us who need to confess our sins, who need to pray with our brothers and sisters to do so in this time of invitation and application. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.